Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Have you ever met someone and thought their job sounded cool? Or perhaps you're wondering how you can get to a position that doesn't seem to match any of the qualifications you have at the moment. Well, if so, this podcast is for you. We found some people with jobs that you might not necessarily know about or expect people to have. And we're going to ask them about how they got there. Welcome to What Do They Do? A podcast about jobs and how people got them. Welcome, everybody, to the second season of What Do They Do? The podcast that's all about jobs and how people got them. We're joined today by Amy Trigg. So Amy, tell us a bit more about you and what you do. Hello. Yeah, so I am an actress and writer from Essex, and I was the first wheelchair user to graduate from a performance course at Mount View Academy of Theatre Arts. Amazing. So we're going to dig a little bit deeper into that as we go through the episode. And Ben, obviously, is here as well. Hello. Hello. Um, so we're going to start with the same question that we've asked everybody through the first season as well, which is, what did you want to be when you grew up? I think I wanted to be an actress. So that was lucky, wasn't it? But I think most people go through a phase of wanting to be an actress or something in that industry. I just stuck with it and was very stubborn. But also, I really wanted to be an events manager at one point, to the point I went to an open day. Um, at university but there was another open day on the same day for actors and I was like oh actors so I went to that one instead <laughs> and then I also wanted to be an RE teacher at one point niche very niche but I think that stems from I really like finding out more about different people and how they live and like cultures which is essentially kind of what acting is you know like every play I get to do that so I kind of fulfill that kind of want I guess and then also I wanted to be a writer but I think going through school it felt quite restrictive by the point I was at like a level English I was like oh I just want to do creative writing and I was having to write about syntax and all that so it kind of put me off for a little bit which is quite sad not that like I had great teachers but I think it's the curriculum and all the restrictions there's a there's a lot of things that I kind of think in school that put you off what you then discover is actually a passion of yours later in life. It's and like you say, I think I think the curriculum does go a long way to making you think it's not 
as interesting as as you think it is. My kids sort of comment on on things like, I don't really like science, but then they're really interested by science. They just don't kind of equate the two. It's so true. Yeah, especially with science. I remember loving science and like year seven and eight, and then suddenly you get to exams and like, oh, you have to do this and do that. And I'm like, oh, I don't like science anymore. But I also think of Shakespeare. Um, so at school, I never connected to, with Shakespeare at all. I was like, oh, ugh, no. Um, and then I started auditioning for drama schools and really connected with it because I suddenly had this amazing kind of teacher who taught me to come at it from a different angle. And now I love it. Like I've just finished working, doing a contract with the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I love being a nerd with it and going through all the tech stuff and doing all that geeky stuff with words. But I hated that when I was at school because I didn't understand why I was doing it. I'm so glad you you said it that way, based on obviously sort of what you talked about with the Royal Shakespeare Company. I, I definitely struggled to connect with it at school. And I would I, I don't think I've had the the epiphany you have. Um, I think it was actually Leo DiCaprio's sort of Romeo and Juliet that probably went a little bit towards making me realise what it could be, but um, not quite the same process. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, like, it's not everyone's cup of tea, the same way there are certain styles of theatre that don't really float my boat. I think that's fine. I think that's the other thing, you know, we're made to feel that if we love something, we have to love everything about it. And in reality, like I know there are aspects of acting that I don't want to get involved in because it doesn't make me passionate. And I think that's okay. You said you wanted to be an actress from when you were a kid. Can you remember, is there a vivid memory of the kind of first time that you really felt that? I think I was just insufferable as a child. (laughs) I think I loved attention from as far back as I can remember. Like I always put on shows, I think most people do, but I was really into writing the scripts and being in charge. So I think I just realized I like attention and I like um, being in control of things. So that's probably where it came from. But also my parents took me to a lot of theatre. Then, oh my goodness, you'd never get them on stage. But they love theatre and they took me to loads. So I think it was just always a part of my life. I can't remember when it wasn't, which is weird. Like maybe my, I never think that my parents are pushy. I really don't think they are. Like they're definitely not dance moms kind of parents. But I'm like, are they the reason I'm like this? But no, they're very cool. Do you remember a particular show? Like was there a first memory of a show they took you to that really sort of lit a spark? Yeah. Okay. So very specifically, I went to see Joseph which I think is a lot of people's first show. Um, but the Joseph Mega mix at the end, which everyone kind of rips into, but honestly, I love it. I remember <laughs> watching that and seeing everyone in their white costumes, I think, um, dancing and everything. And I still listen to it in the car and I'm like, yeah, this is what I want to do. So when you're and in that- the actor's studio being interviewed, you can be like, Joseph Mega mix was the moment. Yeah, and like a very specific moment when the narrator comes out, and I think she sings like a Pharaoh story. And I was like, oh, I want to do that. Um, but also, I think when I was younger, I was really into Blood Brothers and Billy Elliot. They were two shows that I went to see quite a lot to the point where I was a bit obsessive and very embarrassing looking back at it. But I loved it at the time. And they're still great shows. Definitely. And if you enjoy it and it 
floats your boat, right? Why not keep going and seeing it and and nerd out about it? Yeah. It's really interesting because I think you're the first person that we've had on that wanted to do the same thing when they were a kid that they now do as a job. Um, And I know that there are like certain aspects to this and things that you've discovered over time that you like or don't like, and you've discussed it a little bit just there. And so we're going to take a journey from then to now, if you like, and find out more about how Amy Trigg came to be as the actor that she now is, right? Um, So from being a kid, then you realize that you want to get into acting or theater. How did that come about at school? What, What did... Did, did that mean that you chose those options at GCSE and A-level? Were you lined, Were you always thinking that you're going to go to drama school? Yeah, I kind of realised that I wanted to go to drama school. I, it was never a certainty because I knew from an early stage that it was competitive. But at school, I just threw myself into it. Yeah, I took French GCSE two years early and I was horrific. Like I think I got a U or something very embarrassing. <laughs> but the reason I did that... I think from what I remember is so that I could take an extra arts subject when the time came around. So I managed to take performing arts, BTEC, drama, which I took early, I think, and then dance and managed to just do it all. Um, I went to a performing arts, wait, I don't think it wasn't a performing arts school. It wasn't like fame or anything, but I think it was its speciality. Literally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, it was, yeah. I think that's the way of putting it, right? It was, yeah. their, special, it was their specialism. Yes. Was, it their, was it their official specialism? Like, because I know a number of schools had like a, yeah. a, a specific one that you'd see on the sign. This was back in the day where schools would get funding for different specialisms. And so they were funded as a performing arts specialist school. Yeah. That's correct. They were the words I was looking for. And Dean has captured them. Thank you, Dean. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I did all that and we did lots of shows at school and concerts and whatnot. And then I started doing amateur dramatics quite late. Like I think I was 15 when I started doing my first shows outside of school. did High School Musical and I played Kelsey, who plays piano. And the audience were adamant that I could play piano, which I absolutely could not, and that I wasn't in a wheelchair. So they got it completely around the wrong way. They thought it was just a prop. <laughs> and I was like, why? Why would we have chosen that angle? Um, so, yeah, I did um, Amdram and then auditioned for loads of drama schools and thankfully got into Mountview. When you were going through secondary school and college then and you were doing some Amdram, was there one part of performance as a whole that really stood out to you? You mentioned you did drama and dance, for example. Yeah, I knew that I loved acting I knew that from the get-go but I also really loved dance um and I just kind of think because I went to see a lot of musical theatre I decided to go down the musical theatre route but looking back it was acting that I always loved and that I wanted to do more of so I don't quite know when that decision came around because I did sing but I think I took singing lessons because I was like oh I should do because I want to go and do musical theatre rather than I love it you know, I see people who really love singing and get a lot out of it. And I don't think that's ever been me. I think acting is definitely the thing I connected with from quite early on. Uh, were there particular roles that you, as you were sort of starting on this journey, that you always particularly wanted to do? Have you managed to sort of aim towards any particular roles? 
an achievement. Yeah, I have. So there are two two main roles that I really want to do. So I wanted to do uh, to play Laura in the Glass Menagerie. Um, and I kind of knew that from, I think, maybe the first year of drama school when we looked at the script and I was like, oh, I think I could play this part quite well. Um, back when I was still a little bit cocky. Um, but then that ended up being my first theatre gig um, after graduating, quite a while after graduating. It didn't happen straight away. So I managed to do that one. And the other one is Sally Bowles in Cabaret, which Ooh. I haven't done yet. But hey, I'm I'm game if anyone's listening. If when, listening. You, when, when you did the role, um, the first one, having thought, oh, I can nail this role. When you got into it, did that put an ex- a bit of extra pressure on you, it, like your, on yourself? Or did you just feel like it just was where you always belonged? I think, I don't think I thought about it. And I think maybe it is because I was enjoying it so much. I didn't have time to think about the pressure. But also it's a four-hander and like the last scene that's between me and another guy is like 20 something minutes long. Like it was quite an intense show. And I felt kind of cool as a cucumber all the way through. And I remember um, another um, person who was in the cast, Susie, she was like, wait, this is your first theatre gig? And I was like, yeah, yeah. She was like, why are you so calm? And I was like, oh, I don't know really. So oddly, I think it's the calmest I've ever been on a job. Like after that, I felt the pressure come in. But for the first, for that first gig, I was, I was just loving life. And did you study at Mountview? Is that where the love of it came from? You read the script there or something? Yeah, I mean, not in loads of detail. It was one of those plays that we looked at. I think we did a scene study kind of thing on one of the scenes, which was that final scene that, um, not the final scene. Oh, wait, is it the final scene? Either way, it's one of the last scenes. Um, that long scene we looked at at Mountview and it's so beautifully written and I remember people saying oh you should play this and then I did a rehearsed reading and um, after leaving Mountview and it was something totally different it was a new piece of writing and the writer said to me she was like oh you'd be a good Laura in the glass menagerie and I was like I know <laughs> no I didn't I was like yeah I'd like to um so yeah, so it was. It felt like it was always there. Actually. I remember coming to see that in Norwich. I think. Where was it? Nottingham. 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 Yeah, it was one yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah, we came in seeing Nottingham. It was great. I didn't yeah. realise that was your first professional gig after graduating. Actually. Yeah. Well, it was my first theatre proper theatre gig. Okay. Um, I'd done a couple of bits of TV, and I'd done quite a lot of rehearsed readings and things like that. But that was the first proper theatre gig yeah that was fun we came we went for a great tie yes yeah that, yeah that time. god memory it's come flooding back <laughs> do we, um, do we, in the times of, of covid and restaurants struggling do we need to name drop that thai restaurant send all the listeners flooding to it and i think it's a chain one but there's only yeah. a few of them what's it called it's called zap with two a's zap. yeah i was back there recently because i was touring in nottingham again and obviously went back because love me some food it's a great place, really vibrant inside, like amazing kind of setting. I seem to remember there's like a tuk-tuk and lots of signs and stuff all over the place. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> so let's take a step back from that first theatre gig to go into Mountview. Like amazing mm-hmm. that you've left college. This is essentially your dream at this point. You audition hard. 
like talk us through going for these different auditions and then getting a place at Mount View. What did that feel like? Well, I couldn't quite believe my luck, if I'm being honest. I assumed that I'd be auditioning for a couple of years. Um, when I applied for the drama schools, I applied for, I think, between 11 and 13 schools, um, which was quite expensive. But I figured that I'd go all out in my first year of auditioning and then narrow it down for the second year. So I was really kind of adamant that I'd be doing it again. And I think I think I auditioned for all act. no. I had applied for all musical theatre and a few like acting courses. And then someone made a comment about musical theatre courses being after people who look a certain way. And I was like, oh, I don't think that's me. So I changed all of my applications to the acting courses, except for Mountview, where I auditioned for the musical theatre and the acting. And I got into both at Mountview and had to make that decision. And I was like, ah, I'm going to do musical theatre in your face. <laughs> interesting but, uh, reflecting on a comment like that that i mean if you were to go back in time to that situation where they suggest where someone suggested a certain look or they're looking for a certain thing do you do you now feel like you'd address that differently yeah definitely yeah now that i have more of an understanding however sadly it's also based on a bit of truth hmm. like it is a it is a industry that's focused on how people look. Um, you know, I've I've had I've had it in my career. I, I remember getting told that I didn't look disabled enough, and then I got told that I looked too disabled. And I was like, oh, which one am I? <laughs> um, so, although I think I would handle it differently, it's difficult because I think that person who said that was coming at it from a point of. Yeah, truth in a way, sadly. They were trying, they were, from their point of view, they were giving you sound advice that yeah. reflected the truth in the industry. Yeah. And there are some drama schools, certainly when I was auditioning, you looked at their classes and everyone did look the same. Everyone was the same size, same height. And, you know, there were other drama schools that were more, that were more keen on getting people of different types which makes more sense because otherwise in your third year when you're doing showcase and an agent's like oh I'd like I liked the five foot eight um brunette well which one (laughs) I I mean I was going to I was intrigued to know sort of what the uh, auditioning process looks like what you have to prepare how many bits you do because it's not something so my background is um maths and engineering so it's uh, it's an area I don't know as much about as I'd like to really I know everything about maths and engineering <laughs> <laughs> she lied um yeah so it, you have to prepare different things for each um audition the main thing is having a couple of contemporary monologues a couple of classical monologues so normally Shakespeare and then for songs a couple of legit songs and a couple of contemporary songs so it's quite a lot but if you have all of those then you're kind of all right for all the auditions but there are some drama schools that have a list of um like monologues that you have to choose from so that's like an extra thing and then um they're they're quite harsh in some ways like you would go along and do your monologue and song and then you could get cut and that'd be it you paid all your audition money to get up and do two minutes of 
work and then or you could get recalled and have an entire afternoon of workshops with the like heads of departments from a top drama school so it was a really mixed bag and I think it got a bit of getting used to which is probably why some people audition for a few years because after they've done it once they're a little bit more prepared um Mm. luckily though I didn't have to wait too long I found out in February that I'd got an unconditional place at Mountview so after that I was so chilled so chilled especially going into my (laughs) A-level exams and stuff like that I was like "Mm, I know what's happening it's fine but they are quite intense how many auditions had you done before Mountview oh like how many drama other drama school auditions I can't actually remember I think it might have been quite an early one I think I'm not sure it was definitely one of the earlier ones I mean, weirdly, I felt very uh, comfortable on that first audition day at Mount View because it was the first one that I was doing or the only musical theatre audition I was doing. I was like, I haven't really got much to lose. Like, I'm going to have to go and do a dance audition with loads of people who have been training in dance for years. And at this point, you know, I'd done a few Amdram shows and danced UCSC and that was it. So I kind of felt like I didn't have anything to lose. But then I had to go back. Um, to Mountview because they wanted to basically do a second recall where they checked that I could support myself singing so they could actually get me through the course because they were like because you're sat down all the time we want to be sure that we can give you what you need technique wise which is really cool when you think about it that they were actually Mm. thorough they didn't just be like yeah go on then Um, but that was terrifying oh I felt I've never felt so sick before that audition for that recall that was fine. It, it paid off. I mean, I think so. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know how because I, I, I can't really remember much from that recall, but I can't have done my best work because I was so tense. Like, it's interesting how you found it so easy the first time. And then when it, when almost like someone said, now we really want to look at you, that it all changes. Um, but mm-hmm. it, it feels like it comes so naturally to you then with both the, the first show that you did and the audition. Does it, does it, or has it always felt like that when you sort of step into those roles? Um, not necessarily. I think, I think I'm just so happy to be in the room. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, it's great to be here. Um, I find that with auditions now, I have this, um, this way of looking at them. It's like, right, I'll go in and do what I need to do. And then afterwards, I'm going to forget about it doesn't matter if I get it or not. I've done my job and that's it. And I always treat them as a chance to perform rather than a chance to be tested, which I think helps me. And looking back, I probably had those thoughts when I was 18 and auditioning for drama school, whether that's to protect myself, maybe, but that's just always been in my head. And then with with actually working, I, I think I'm... I get imposter syndrome quite a bit when I start a job, like most people. And I'm very quiet sometimes, which I don't think is how I normally am as a person. So I think I probably cope really well with it, but not necessarily in the best ways sometimes. (laughs) 
you just brought up imposter syndrome, which I feel like we should have a siren for at this point. Every, every <laughs> single person, Ben and I included, every single person that we've spoken to here um, always brings up imposter syndrome. And um, I, I, we tend, we're talking to people who have been very successful in their own way. You know, there is no mm-hmm. doubt about the fact that you have been amazingly successful and you'll continue to be as you go through your career. Um, and I think it is those moments where you catch yourself and 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 you do think, oh, do I actually, do I deserve to be here? It feels like I'm surrounded by people that are much more amazing than I am. Um, and I read a blog that you wrote for the RSC earlier that gave mention to imposter syndrome as well and how you kind of um, came came over it for those RSC shows that you did. Mm. Can you give us, what are your tips for doing that from maybe from an acting or theatre point of view, what do you think are some of the ways that, or some of the things that you do to help you get through that first stage? So I think for me, well, for acting in general, I think one of the issues is that you sometimes have months where you're not doing anything. And then to jump back in, like right into the deep end is scary. And I think that's why so many actors and people in that industry in particular have those thoughts when they start a job, because normally they're, you know, out of practice. Um, sometimes, not always. So one of the things that I found helped me in the long run was doing courses and going to workshops in between jobs. I felt like that kept me on track a little bit so that when I did go and start a job, I was like, this is okay. I've been in a room of people that I don't know quite a lot in the last few months, so I can handle this. I think the other thing is talking to people. I think sometimes when I'm feeling a bit anxious, I step away and I just have to protect myself, but that's not healthy, I don't think. So, you know, chatting to people and offering them a tic sack and stuff like that at the start of rehearsals um, or the start of the day really helps me because then obviously you will, you normally realise that everyone is feeling the same way as you. Even the people that have been in the industry for like 40 years are feeling that way. So just talking to people I think helps. And also preparation People always tell me like not to over-prepare, but I'm definitely an over-preparer because it just makes me feel more secure when I go into any situation. Uh, yeah, I wonder whether with imposter syndrome, I feel like there's a healthy version of it, which you know prompts you to prepare for whatever mm-hmm. you're going into for a role, um, which sort of means that you're not overly cocky or arrogant about going into certain situations. And then it... I feel the bit we talk about sometimes is where it tips over into sort of preventing you from going for things which you are more than capable of going for. And that's what some people were talking about of like, um, so Caitlin in one of the first episodes talked about being headhunted for a role. And I think initially she just dismissed it as like, oh, they've clearly, they've got the wrong person or they they don't mean me. And it took someone else to say, yeah, they meant you, You're, you know, you can do that. So that talking to people bit comes up. Um, but where it's it's just keeping you from getting overconfident feels like it's a thing that should you know is is good to have to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the advice about offering someone a TikTok is great. Though I can imagine you've got to be careful about how you offer it. <laughs> Especially right now. <laughs> do you want yeah. do you wanna do you want a TikTok? <laughs> Take, take That's true. Oh no, maybe people just think I've been really rude for like a long time. Um, Deodorant? Yeah. No. 
I've been doing that since I was auditioning for drama school. Like I just go in and try and make some friends with Tic Tacs. Um, but, oh yeah, Ben, you just said something that I was going to um, pick up on and I forgot what it was for a moment, but I've remembered it now about like getting headhunted and getting opportunities and not thinking that you're the right person for it. That's another thing that I found. I put myself out there for like things that I didn't think I was going to get at all. And like on occasion, not all the time, but I've got them. And it's been such a kind of like, oh, okay, this this kind of helps. Um, so that's the other thing that I've tried to do, just go for anything and everything. And if I'm trying, then I'm doing my best. There's a few other things that you've done, Amy, that I want to touch on. But you mentioned being the first uh, wheelchair user to graduate from a performance course at Mount View. Can you tell us a bit about your experience from that point of view? Like, how did that feel? Did you work with them to figure out how certain things would work? Were they accommodating? Yes. So Mountview was not accessible when I went there. They're now in a beautiful new building in Peckham. But when I went, we were in Wood Green and I couldn't access the canteen or the library and quite a few classrooms for the first term. And then they got this like stair lift put in which had this really loud beeping noise on it I think I've still got a recording on my phone because it was like ear piercing and right. I'd be going up these stairs and there was like Alexander technique sessions going on and they'd be like oh Amy's coming up <laughs> which is embarrassing um there was also no accessible toilet in the musical theatre block so I had to go upstairs to the offices um that weren't attached to Mount View they were like council offices so Physically, physical access, it was quite complicated and it was definitely a journey that we went on together, especially when it got to performances and us working out, are these theatres accessible? Can I perform in these places? But they were they were really good. They did they really listened. And as far as training was concerned, it was a constant conversation. So for dance, for instance, I think I went to every single dance class most of the time, but there were a couple of terms where I got taken out of one of the tap lessons to go and work with um, a dance teacher one-on-one and we'd work out how to adapt dances and we'd work on different techniques that other people didn't really need, but I did. So they were great. I mean, yeah, so good. It was kind of pain, painless in many ways. And you, uh, you contributed to a book called Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies. And you talk a bit about your experience of being a wheelchair user in the theatre or acting industry or the performance industry. Um, can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah. So being a disabled actress um, or actor in the industry is definitely interesting. I mean, it's come on leaps and bounds in the last few years, but we're still at the point where we have castings go out for deaf and disabled roles and they say no experience required, or they want to find a disabled character, but they don't know who they want. So I think I mentioned it in the book actually about going to castings and being in a room full of people that are just totally different. And you're like, okay, you're essentially auditioning a disability, not not a character. And although that has calmed down a little bit, it's still definitely there. However, I've been, you know, 
fairly successful in different aspects in different well I've been fairly successful in different ways and I think some of that is down to me being disabled my it's a part of my identity and you know it sometimes adds to a role or adds to a show having that voice involved so I think it sometimes does play in my favor but a lot of the time it it doesn't because I physically can't get into some buildings which is probably the main issue so when you were growing up and thinking about being an actor um did you ever perceive it as a barrier sort of being a wheelchair user or was that just something that kind of other people imposed upon you as you kind of went through the process I think people imposed it on me there were some comments made when I was at, at school like not very nice comments uh people saying you know why is, why is she here she can't dance she's in a wheelchair um all things like that which you know was really upsetting at the time because I don't think I'd thought about those things before someone else had brought them to my attention very kindly um I also don't think I looked that far ahead. I knew that I wanted to go to drama school, but didn't really think about what would happen afterwards. It wasn't until I was at drama school that I thought, okay, what's going to happen in my third year? And a lot of people were like, oh, people are going to you know, eat you up. It's going to be great because you're in a wheelchair and you're trained in this and you can do that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's going to be great. Everyone's going to love me. <laughs> and then my first or even second year out of drama school was very quiet. And you realize that, People want diversity, but they want easy diversity. And in many ways, you know, I wasn't an easy way to be diverse if you're a pub theatre. Um, yeah. <laughs> in, the, in your part of the book, you talk about how basically like access to buildings, for example, going to these auditions where it felt like they were auditioning a disability rather than a character that led you to discover, in a, in a sense, improv and become a real lover of improv. And I think you also earlier talked about workshops kind of tiding you over through these periods between jobs as well, to, so that you are in front of people in a group, like learning new skills. Tell us about when you really discovered improv. Like there's a, there's a particular moment or course stick in your mind and yeah. that's how freeing it was. It kind of stems back to when I first left Mount View and I realized that there weren't many roles out there for me they just weren't being written and you know especially in musical theater the one kind of disabled role that came to mind for most people was Nessa Rose in Wicked who has to walk at the end of the show and as much as I tried I couldn't do that <laughs> so I started to realize that the parts just didn't exist and I was I was really frustrated in the first couple of years because I couldn't get acting work. Well, I say that I got this kind of very small TV gig about a month after graduating and I got an agent straight from Showcase. So I was really, really fortunate, but also the parts weren't there. And um, I also couldn't get a like day job because of access. <laughs> and it was just impossible. I was getting so frustrated and I was volunteering for different things and you know, trying to keep busy. And then I read um, Amy Poehler's book, Yes, Please, and Tina Fey's book, Bossy Pants. And in that they talk about improv and they talk about creating the roles and that it doesn't matter who's in an improv troupe because 
the roles aren't written yet. You get to write them yourselves. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes. And um, I love, you know, Saturday Night Live and um, the, the comedy scene out in America, which I realize is also in London, but I didn't know about that at the time. So I sign up to an improv class. And I think the first one I did was long form improv. And I loved it. It was like um, maybe eight weeks with this great group of people. And the first couple of weeks, I was probably very quiet and didn't really know how to respond socially. And I think that's the interesting thing about improv, because I would go and before we started, I'd kind of be sat in the corner like, oh, I don't know what to say to people. Like, this is out of my comfort <laughs> zone. Oh, gosh. But then doing a scene, I was, I was on it. I wanted to do the scene. So I kind of got my personality out in that way, which then opened up conversations. And I ended up, you know, making friends and whatnot. And from that point, I started doing uh, short form improv courses. I did improv to sketch courses and everything like that. Um, I did a Harold course. And funnily enough, I started taking these improv classes. And then it was pretty soon after that, that I got my th first theatre gig. And I always think, was that coincidence? Or was that because I was bringing a different energy into the room when I auditioned? And I think it's probably the latter. And just for those people listening that aren't necessarily into theatre, have no idea what the hell improv is that we're chatting about. <laughs> what What is improv? So improvisation is essentially making things up on the spot. It's like acting without a script. I say that I've just done the summer school with like um, four, four to eight year old, no, four to 12 year olds. I was getting them all to explain what improv was and it was always acting without a script and whatnot. But there is obviously a lot more to it than that. You can you know, do dramatic improv, you know, Mike Lee does a lot of improv that isn't you know, your classic kind of Chicago style improv, but then you've got the Chicago style improv where it's about creating it for entertainment and just getting up on the spot and doing it in troops. That's probably not the best way of describing improv. How would you describe improv, Dean? I think acting without a script sums it up really well. I think what people forget is basically what you just said is I think a lot of people associate improv with whose line is it anyway, as an example yeah. of a TV show. So very much linked to comedy, but it can go far beyond that. Um, and so I feel like that's the widespread version of improv that people might recognize. But if yeah. you dig a little bit deeper, there's there's a lot more to it. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because at drama school, I did lots of improv but none of it was performance improv it was improv to explore character and we did you know extensive improv exercises we went to um Ali Pali and we did an art class where we had to stay in character but it wasn't until I realized that you could do improv as its own show um that I really connected with it I suppose it sounds like the difference there is where because you hear about certain directors being very adamant that you stick to every single, you know, every not just every line, but beyond that. Um, and then you hear about uh, directors that are very open um, with where you can take your character. But I suppose mm -hmm. what you're getting at there is, in those situations, you're given a character and you've got some bounds on what you can do. Whereas, so what you discovered was, I pick the character 
and that can be whoever, whatever, whenever, um, and that was the yeah. freedom. Um, so that that sounds like the key. I, I, my only reference point was actually when I got I had to pick a course. Um, I was presenting at an event um, on using technology in the classroom, and but you also had to pick all the sessions you would go to across the two days, and there was a role play session. And I got put into that one and I thought, oh, well, this is no use from a mass teaching whatsoever. <laughs> um, but I went in with an open mind. And actually, it was talking about kind of the roles that you play. So I might have a role, my role as teacher, my role as dad, my role as a friend. And actually, when the kids come through the door of the classroom, they might put on their role as a maths learner. So, they might, you know, when they walk through that maths classroom door, it's like, right, barriers up. I hate this. Mm. I'm going to last for the hour and hopefully get out of here. And it was talking about if you can give them a different role to play. So it might be that, hey, today, can you be our note taker just to sort of find out what goes on? Or can you, your role today is to ask the most awkward questions possible of me to help everyone else understand. And that was when it, it, for some of the students that I taught, I thought if I give them a different role to play in my lesson might that free up the experience for them of kind of engaging in the maths lesson so um i think there's a lot of it sounds like improv is something that could uh, benefit a lot of people more widely yeah i love that i think it's such a transferable skill like there are books i've read i think there's one called yes and which is just about using improv in business and i've been away from the improv scene for quite a while now um i've been busy doing other things and I really miss it but I'm also very aware that although I'm not you know the top of my game with technique and everything right now I still use everything in what I do you know even um, doing something like Shakespeare that is quite restricted you know you have to do what's on the page but there are still elements of improv that makes that more playful and I feel like I'm braver in taking uh, risks and trying something out because of that so your latest, uh, it's not your latest job, but maybe your, your latest big job that you just completed was with the Royal Shakespeare Company. I really want to hear more about that. But before we do, I already mentioned a little while ago the book that you were a part of, which is a Sunday Times bestseller, by the way. Casual. Like, how does that feel to be in a Sunday Times best-selling book? <laughs> it was cool. I mean, it was so weird the way it came around because it essentially came from improv because I was doing improv and then I started doing stand-up for a, sh you know, for a short period of time, but it happened and I really enjoyed it, but I realized it needed a lot more time and effort putting into it. And I was using my time and effort in other ways. Um, but because of that, I got asked to do some talks on diversity and then that led to talks on feminism and then intersectional feminism. And from those talks, came you know this this book so it was very strange but wild that it all kind of linked back to improv I, I think if I hadn't done that improv course um, back in what was it like 2015 or whatever yeah I probably wouldn't have done that book it's very clear in your part of the book that you are a huge fan of Amy Poehler and Tina Fey <laughs> um, as well but definitely recommend going to buy it we'll leave a link in the show notes as well so thoroughly recommend people go and check it out on on that theme of of kind of diversity and looking forward 
Oh, like my, um, I was speaking to an actor when we were doing a careers fair. So we did a, uh, me and a friend of mine, we did a careers fair for sort of 16 to 18 year olds to watch on a live stream. Uh, and we just got loads of people on to talk about their careers and what they were doing. And we're speaking to one of his, um, I think it's actually his well, sort of brother-in-law, uh, who's an actor. Um, and uh, as a as a black male actor, he was talking a little bit about the roles that he is expected to play a lot of the time that might sort of lend to stereotypes. So actually he's writing at the moment and he's, he's I think he's writing because he wants to, but it also allows him to potentially write parts that are a little bit more open for different actors. And I'm just wondering... Um, so he was talking about when he gets involved in Shakespeare, the obvious role is Othello and there's not mm. much else. But having recently like, you know, shows like Hamilton, which kind of blow out the water, this idea about who should be cast for certain roles. Have, have you, obviously some of the writing you might be doing, but just like the what's the next step to sort of move this conversation forward? Gosh, I mean, casting is such an issue and... I think one of the reasons that, I mean, you just mentioned uh, casting in Shakespeare. I think it is a really important point of reference for casting because it's been around for so long and so many different things have been done with that those texts. Why wouldn't we play about with casting now? You know, it, it, there's no reason why we can't have a black Juliet. Absolutely no reason. Um, and, you know, some people are very picky and they pull like certain very obscure lines out and they're like no we can't do that because of this line and this scene it's like honey we cut Shakespeare now like no one wants to sit in the theatre for that long just cut that problematic line and carry on um but I, I do think it's improving I think I think it's more the audiences that aren't ready there are quite a few theatre companies and institutions that I know of and that I've spoken to who really want to move forward with casting and they want to create these roles for people and to diversify. However, there are issues with, you know, some audiences don't want to see that. And we certainly experienced it. Um, we just did Tame with the Shrew where it's gender reversed. And there were some people who were not happy with that. <laughs> they don't want to see it differently. And they, you know, it, does that stem from them not wanting to see men without power and they don't want to see women with power? And I think I think we just got to plow on and try and make audiences just accept that this is happening. When I hear responses from, let's say, people that look like me to to some what I would call strides forward, I, I sometimes wonder whether they think there's only a certain amount of power and control to go round and that if you start giving it to other parts of society then like some for some reason they'll lose it rather than seeing as you know what we could all feel comfortable and and I, I do sometimes wonder whether that's just there's a nervousness about losing it rather than seeing it as something we could all share perfectly evenly yeah 100 percent. and I think there's also that feeling of once they've done the bare minimum they've done enough and that's not driving it forward. You know, people are trying to be more diverse at the moment, but unfortunately, deaf and disabled people are being left out of most conversations. 
and you know people are celebrating being very diverse and that's brilliant like places are becoming more diverse however you're still not including everyone in society and i think that's one of the big issues is that people feel like they take one step and that's enough and it's like no 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 we're not just going towards the end of the the front garden we need to go right into the main road with this yeah that's not a problem either i think so i i I dabble in kind of design thinking work with a few different organizations and and one of the great strategies for good design is designing for the extremes like the oxo peel is one example where it was it was specifically designed with someone's arthritic mother in mind and they ended up designing a peeler that everyone could use really effectively. Um, so, so that kind of, and, and equally like with my background in civil engineering, so building design, I remember someone talking about, well, you'll lose an amazing architectural feature if you don't, can't just have steps on the front of a building. And you're thinking, that's not the purpose of the building. The purpose of the building <laughs> that people can go into it. Um, everyone can go into it. And yeah, those kind of mind shifts around what it's for. And I, I, yeah. All right. yeah. My, um, my mate, Nikki, she came out with a great like term recently. I don't know if it's hers. Maybe she stole it from someone, but I'll say it's her. <laughs> but she said, everyone's pre-disabled. And it's like, oh yeah. So it is weird that people are so stubborn about having steps and having gravel everywhere it's like you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow my friend absolutely that sounded really dark it sounded like i was <laughs> <laughs> can you go out whoa i want to quickly flag though that amy your work in this area is i think a really good example of how small things can really drive things forward so as two examples i just want to highlight because i think they deserve to be highlighted one is you started a youtube channel trig vlogs is it trig vlogs or amy trig vlogs um, i think i might have changed it to just amy trig but i think oh. it's still it might still be trig vlogs amy trig. we'll put we'll put a link in the description um sure. and it's clear that you make an effort to audio describe everything that you do and you subtitle all the videos and these are things that should be the norm for everyone that's creating on the platform so that their content can be made available and accessible for everybody that would like to see it and hear it. Um, and how did, like, it, where are the gaps there? And what, what drove you to do that? Is it through your own experiences that drove you to do that? Is it other people that you've met along the way through doing jobs like working with the RSC, for example? I didn't think about any of that for a really long time. And it wasn't until I did a show back in 2017 uh, called Tommy and it was for Ramps on the Moon and it was essentially an integrated cast of deaf and disabled actors along with non-deaf and disabled actors. And it was so eye-opening because I felt like uh, it was just joyous and I was quite timid and not really a fully grown human Um, when I was at drama school and I felt like I got the experience that most people have at uni and drama school whilst doing Tommy and I think that was because I was suddenly around a group of people that didn't make me feel like other and no one I don't think people intentionally make you feel like you're other but if you're the only person who needs um, certain things you know 
what's the right word? I don't know. If you're the only one that needs a ramp, then you do feel other. That's just it. And a lot of my mates on that show were deaf um, or blind and whatnot. And it just made me think, oh, I never want to make stuff that isn't accessible to my mates. And the show, Tommy, was captioned and it was audio described and everything. So it just became apparent to me. And unfortunately, it took me being uh, thrown into that world. Like I hadn't thought about it before. Yeah. And that's why I try not to get annoyed when people don't think about it. Whenever I'm like, oh, why don't these people think about having a ramp or like having an interpreter? It's like, Amy, calm down. You didn't think about it when you were, you know, in your I don't know, early 20s or whatever. So I try and be really chill about it. But I think it's something that needs to become normal. Normal yeah. with inverted commas. Yeah, I think othering and belonging is, is very hot topics right now. And I was just related to work earlier. There's a guy called John A. Powell. Um, who leads the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. And I was just listening to a conversation with him earlier. Really interesting topic, exactly for those reasons. I think the other thing that I wanted to flag is that you actually formed an improv group. And I was part of this group. We did a couple of shows. And one of the steps that you took with that group is to um, have a sign language interpreter at the show live translating into British Sign Language whilst we were improvising, which um, I think that's the, we're pretty sure it's the first time that's been done, do you think? I think if it wasn't the first, it was one of the first, yeah. I mean, maybe there was a company out there that had done it, but I wasn't aware and had never been to a show that had. I mean, it was really, it was quite a big ask. My mate, Alim, who I met doing Tommy, um, he's incredible, he's a qualified BSL interpreter and um, he was just up for the challenge. And he was incredible. He was, he was amazing. Oh, it, it and was, I think, it, oh, so good. I, I think what's really interesting is that you could go to many interpreters and they wouldn't want to take on that challenge. It would feel like that's very out of the scope of what they would normally do. There would be a script in advance and you would know what you need to interpret as the show moves mm -hmm. through. And what Alan is do was doing is interpreting what's happening on stage, but then also obviously interpreting things that people were suggesting from the audience as well, like deaf audience members. Um, yeah. And I think it just actually created a really amazing dynamic. And again, it was just so nice to be able to have a show that was a, a bit more a bit more accessible to like a larger group of people than it would normally be. Yeah, and we definitely hadn't reached perfection. Yeah. Um, you know, we all became busy, the people in that group. So we didn't manage to go to the next stage but we had started to integrate access into the games that we played on stage. So thinking about having integrated audio description and um, incorporating sign language into what we were doing. However, also we none of us know BSL, to be blunt about it. And yep. I think the next stage would have been getting deaf improvisers on stage and... Um, and blind and everyone, everyone on stage. I think that would be a really glorious next step to take. And I think that's also really important to say that um, that I'm definitely not perfect in my efforts to make things more accessible. And um, I don't claim to be, but I hope that, you know, what we're doing, we can take it further at some point. 
hundred percent. I think the point is that you have to start somewhere and it's better to do something and try than to do nothing and not make the situation any better um, for anyone. Personally, I think the work that you've done in that area is amazing. And uh, I think that all of those steps will make a big difference to the industry over time. Um, And I think that the more that you do as well, the more you'll bring it to the other places that you that you work in and the other companies that you work with. Um, Thank you. I hope so. So, sorry, go. I was I was just going to say I don't know if I'll word this um, very well, but it's a hard balance sometimes because I want to you know fight the good fight and do all that, but I also don't want my entire life to be around being disabled, and I sometimes struggle with that because you know um, there are people who are very um, vocal about it on social media in and in everything they do. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not on social media all the time. So I guess that's why maybe I'm not. But I do find it a struggle because you do sometimes think, oh, am I being too vocal about this? And it's tricky that we're still in a position where we worry about that. But that's a reality. I suppose something that was highlighted quite globally by Black Lives Matter was about advocating and speaking up regardless of whether you're in that situation or not, you know, not staying silent. So I suppose that's, it's incumbent on everyone. You should, you know, you shouldn't have to fight that particular fight alone and equally everyone else, you know, we can see these injustices all the time. Um, and it, it, you need, you need someone on your shoulder when you, you know, you're like, I don't want to, I don't want to do this today where someone else steps up and like, well, I do. Um, And that's probably, that feels like the key to moving things forward where it's, it's not the only the communities directly affected by these situations who feel like they have to sort of keep on knocking on that door. That's so true. That's so right. And also I feel like my social media is an echo chamber, like pretty much everyone I follow and the people that follow me have the same opinions as me. So it's, it's kind of relying on other people to reach further afield. Definitely. Yeah, actually, one of the things through, we've got a couple of social media accounts around the podcast, um, and one of the things it's kind of allowed me to do, I could have done this with my own social media accounts, but is to is to follow people I wouldn't normally follow because I thought, oh, that's an interesting way to find people for the podcast. Um, but it's actually tapped me into different conversations that, I wouldn't normally have got involved with. So there's some benefit to that. I mean, I find social media is a, you know, <laughs> a friend, friend and foe from time to time. So I have to keep it easy. But um, definitely kind of mixing with different conversations is really worth it. As we come to the end of the recording it's been amazing to chat to you i want to there's a couple of other things i do want to talk about though one we mentioned earlier which is the rsc so an amazing globally renowned theater company tell us what it's like working with the royal shakespeare company and how was the tour and the two shows that you're involved in it was glorious it was like the best job i love it and i miss it lots you know we we had our tour cut short for obvious reasons um but I was with them for over a year and it was hard work. So they still do rep theatre. So we were doing, I was doing two shows at once 
And it's relentless, especially if you're also an understudy, because um, I never thought I'd be an understudy, but uh, I I am now, or I was. Um, and But it's such hard work. And I think rep theatre is an absolute education for any actor or creative in the industry to just be working all the time very intensely. It's, I, I felt like I did an MA, like a post-grad course with the RSC. And also I went, I'd done, uh, had I done that Shakespeare? Not really. I'd done a bit of Shakespeare at drama school and I knew that I loved it. And then I did um, a short gig with the Globe in London the year before, but I still felt quite green in a way. And what they do is they just give you so much care and attention you know, we had Shakespeare gym uh, quite frequently when we just got taught about different aspects of Shakespeare. So for me, it was, yeah, it was priceless. Really amazing. And you, you're in two shows. Does one stick out as a favourite and why? Oh, I don't know. Um, I loved The Taming of the Shrew because I think it was a really uh, cool production. You know, it was gender reversed. And um, I had a lot of fun with my character who was a bit, um, I don't know, neurotic maybe in a way and spoke very quickly. And it was a bit like doing pantomime, which I think Shakespeare comedies pretty much are. Highbrow pantomimes is probably what they like to think of themselves. <laughs> As, um, but I also love Measure for Measure purely because I love the play. I didn't know it very well. And I think it's one of the most beautiful texts. And I also had less to do in it, which meant that I could enjoy myself backstage a little bit more. Although I did understudy quite a few different roles in that one. So there were some performances that were a bit, a bit, a bit wild. So I enjoyed both of them. I can't um choose. On that note, you're talking about rep theatre where you're part of two shows at once. You have understudy parts as well. I'm feeling like there must be some really solid tips somewhere from you about how on earth you remember everything in that situation. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm quite nerdy when it comes to learning lines. I like to do it very thoroughly. And, yeah, I just shut myself away and learn um, <laughs> just learn it's a very lonely experience at times um, but I think then for me it was just having the discipline to run those lines every week um, you know there was one role that I never got to go on for but I ran those lines every week just to make sure that I was on on top of my game and also you know memory is a muscle and I think it's really helped because I came out of that contract and started doing, you know, self tapes and um, little projects from home. And I thought, oh my goodness, it's been such a long time since I've done this and done anything other than Shakespeare. Can I do this? And actually everything felt really not easy, but enjoyable, you know, lines went in. And I think it's because I just had a year and a bit of, um, exercising that muscle you're constantly practicing like going to the gym basically yeah exactly and you know i think what people don't realize as well is that the rsc are brilliant at doing lots of events as well and if you're a company member you often get involved in those events so we'd, we'd be doing those two shows and our understudy rehearsals and you know open um open dresses and whatnot 
but we'd also be learning a sonnet every now and then and go and perform in it and whatnot. So it was just a great way of exercising. And am I right in thinking, I think in Taming of the Shrew, there's a, a big monologue that you have to yes. deliver. How, yeah. how big was it? And how did you find remembering that? Okay, so on my, uh, it was it was a whole page of A4 um, at like normal kind of print size, I guess, font size. Um, it was quite difficult to learn at first. But I, again, I, I think with anything, no matter how hard it looks, if you just, um, if you just learn it and accept that you're going to lock yourself away in your bedroom for an hour or however long it takes and it will go in. Um, there were times when I did that monologue because it was very quick. I had to say it really, really quickly. And I think there were maybe three times during the whole run where m my heart just dropped because I thought I'd forgotten what came next. <laughs> but it was fine. Apparently, it wasn't very noticeable. <laughs> I think I got away with it. <laughs> you, you always delivered it, but it's that thought in your mind. It's like when you consciously, you, you suddenly consciously think about what it is that you're saying. And, and that Isn't made that your heart. the worst? I hate when you suddenly actually think about what you're doing. And that happened because I was very, this is going to sound like such a like brag, but um, <laughs> so there was often an applause after that speech. And um, it was very nice. Yeah, lovely. Great. Um, but then um, Greg, who was the director of Measure for Measure, I was doing Tame of the Shrew in the evening and then went and rehearsed Measure for Measure during the day. And he was like, oh, here you're getting an applause every night after, the sh after that speech. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And then that night, absolutely nothing. <laughs> he went around like, the audience. He told them. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, don't give her a big head. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, I do wonder, I was like, is that because I was thinking about it so much that I like just told the audience not to do it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just shows you not to think about it and not get used to anything because sometimes it doesn't happen and it's painful, but we carry on. Two last quick questions. The first is, what are you working on now? What's next in the pipeline? What can we look forward to seeing Amy Trigan? The things that you can tell us about. Um, <laughs> well, I guess the industry is pretty much shut at the moment. So there isn't loads happening. However, I am, wait, what am I doing? I'm, uh, I'm doing some writing. I can't say too much, I don't think, but I'm doing some writing at the moment, which is very fun. And um, yeah, I'm getting involved with that. Uh, I, I basically wrote a play last year during a two week break uh, in the shows. We just finished the tour in Spain and we were starting in London two weeks later. So I decided to write a play and then developed it uh, when we got to London and whatnot and then sent it off to competitions and stuff. And it's basically that that's coming to, I don't know, something. We'll see what happens, but I'm enjoying concentrating on that at the moment. Amazing. I love that you were talking about imposter syndrome, but in your two week yeah. break, you just wrote a play. No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> <Ever>. yeah. <laughs> and you recently were in uh, like an online play. Um, so I've done a few things um, like during lockdown and whatnot. So I did, um, a TV, uh, there was a TV show called Unprecedented on BBC that I did a bit of. And then we've been doing some play readings online, which have been recorded and posted on YouTube. 
And um, while I was still with the RSC, we did a couple of um, like short films and stuff like that or short digital plays. So, yeah, there's been quite a lot happening, really, I guess. Is there a lot of innovation going on in, in at the moment because of, you know, everything you've ever known gets taken away overnight and you're suddenly, right, we've got to try everything. Yes, I, I think everyone is an expert on Zoom now and um, recording. I've had to get better at editing because I've written a few things that we filmed and had to edit it to make it, you know, look a little bit better. Um, there's definitely a lot going on, which is reassuring, but it is it's such a strange thing at the moment. Um, <clears throat> yeah, not really knowing what comes next, but it's positive that things are happening. Amy, it has been amazing to talk to you and dig a little bit deeper into your story. You genuinely are inspirational from having uh, a goal that you wanted to be an actor from when you were young and you literally just ran it and you continue to run it. And uh, it's been awesome to see everything that you have been doing over the years and not not just in acting, but moving into being a writer. You have a, a piece in a book. You have been on panels talking about feminism. Um, you know, it's amazing to see and I can't wait to see what the next 20, 30, 40 years um, <laughs> as you go into the industry. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who have similar hopes and ambitions for um, what they want to do. And if you could give them one piece of advice, what would be that piece of advice that you leave them with? I guess it's have different passions and don't get stuck on one thing in particular. Because if you don't go down different paths, sometimes, you know, you cut yourself off. I think that's what I would say. Love that. And that uh, definitely feels like a lived experience for you as well, where you've tried different things that kind of have branched off from yeah. acting in the musical theatre thing, turning really into a love of acting. Exactly. And yeah, you know, some people often say, well, why did you do musical theatre if you wanted to do um, acting? But actually, you know, doing musical theatre opened up doors for me. You know, I wouldn't have done Tommy or Mamma Mia or anything like that. So you know, I'm pleased. Wait, hang on. I was about to say thanks and end it there. And then you just threw it in there at the end. Mamma Mia just got dropped in there. And we yeah. haven't actually mentioned it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I, I was in, so I did the Mamma Mia Here We Go Again film. Um, like I, I was a dancer in it. And um, yeah, it was just fun to be able to use kind of the dance stuff that I'd spent three years slaving over. Really cool. And we'll we'll put a link down to the movie as well. <laughs> Check it out. It's by Amy in, in the film. Cool. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really, really awesome to speak to you. No, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.